Thank you for having me. Uh, they told me that um, I should talk for about um, 10 minutes and then take questions. So I was trying to figure out what could I possibly say in 10 minutes that would um, have any meaning. Uh, so I thought I would um, maybe give you a little bit of advice uh, from my perspective of having been in this job for three years. So just to give you a little bit of context uh, for the work that I do, um, I was uh, appointed uh, into this job in June 2007. Um, and the way I came into this was actually uh, uh, Adrian Fenty, who is the mayor here, swept into office in November of 2006 in an, in an incredibly unconventional way. Um, so he was not endorsed by anyone, uh, couldn't raise a whole lot of money, uh, didn't attend the uh, debates and the, the, the things that typically happen in a mayoral election. Um, and rather, his philosophy was that he was going to knock on doors and meet people across the city face to face and hear what they were concerned about and let them know uh, what he was going to focus his administration on. And legend has it that he knocked on about half the doors in the city. Um, and his strategy actually paid off. He um, won in a landslide election. He was the youngest mayor ever to be elected mayor in Washington, D.C. He um, was the only mayor ever to be uh, elected, winning every single precinct in the city and more than 80% of the vote. So it was pretty uh, resounding, his victory. And, and, and quite shocking, I think, to a lot of sort of the establishment here in the city. Uh, and on his first day in office, as, as is typical of my boss, um, he made it very clear what he wanted. Um, so he introduced legislation on day one um, that would give him mayoral control of the schools. And the city went through sort of a process over the next four months to debate this. Uh, and in April of 2007, he was granted that authority. Uh, it passed, the legislation passed through city council. And on June 12th of 2007, that was the first day that he took control <laughs> of the schools. And on that same day, he announced me as his pick for chancellor. And uh, when he did this, First of all, people were saying, well, wait a second, there was supposed to be this process, right? There was this huge process that was laid out about how the chancellor was going to be chosen. And, and in his mind, at least, he had, he had gone through that process. But in other people's minds, not so much. Uh, so after people kind of got done sort of talking about the fact that what happened to the process, then they looked up and said, who is this woman, right? He, here's this 37-year-old girl from, a Korean girl from Toledo, Ohio, who had never run a school, much less a school district. And I was the diametric opposite of what most people in this city both wanted and expected in their first school's chancellor. And the common sort of uh, buzz about the city was, what on God's green earth was Adrian Fenty thinking? So it was with that auspicious um, introduction to the city that I began my job. And I inherited a school district uh, that was the only school district in the country that was on high-risk status with the U.S. Department of Education, most, mostly for the misuse of federal funds. Uh, we ha were a school district where of all of the ninth graders who began high school in this district, only 9% of them would end up graduating from college within five years of graduating. <clears throat> Uh, from high school, uh, we had an achievement gap in the city between our white children and our black children in terms of their academic achievement levels of 70 percentage points. 7-0, Seven 70 percentage point achievement gap. And of all of the eighth graders 
in the district. Only 8% of them were operating on grade level in mathematics, according to the NAEP examination, which is a national examination, 8%, which meant that 92% of our young people did not have the skills and knowledge necessary to be productive members of society. Um, and perhaps the most disheartening data that I got during my first year on the job was about our little ones. And basically what that data said was that our kids came into the system as kindergartners relatively on par with kindergartners in other urban jurisdictions. So not with their suburban counterparts. We already knew that they were far behind them. But as kindergartners, they were on par with kids from Atlanta and Philly and San Francisco, Oakland, places like that across the country. The problem was that the longer they stayed in our system, the worse off they were. So that by the time they were in the third grade, they were far below their urban counterparts. And this was an interesting statistic, was that in my fourth year, we did the data analysis to show that the poor black fourth graders in New York City were operating two full grade levels ahead of the poor black fourth graders here in Washington, D.C. So for everyone who wanted to blame the low academic achievement levels of the children in the nation's capital on poverty and on single parent household and on the social ills of their, of their uh, community, you know, the, the last time that I checked, the poverty in Harlem did not look all that different from the poverty in southeast Washington, D.C., but those kids are two grade levels ahead of ours. So uh, a, a lot of people <laughs> looked at that and said, okay, this is an impossible job, right? And I started going, uh, traveling throughout the city and sort of talking to people about what my vision was and what we wanted to accomplish. And it was interesting because I would oftentimes, you know, spend my evenings going out and, and talking to all these community groups and these, you know, law firms and rotary clubs and things like that. And, and I would often, you know, afterwards be approached by people who would say, you know, you know, Michelle, we really like you. You are enthusiastic. You seem smart. Clearly, you know, you're passionate about what you're doing, but you are not going to be successful. <laughs> and I always used to say, gee, thanks. Why do you think so? And they'd say, because schools are a reflection of the communities that they're in. And as long as you have the economic disparities in this country that you do, you're always going to have the educational inequality, right? You're always going to have some neighborhoods, and in those neighborhoods where you have lots of rich people, they have all the resources, you're going to have great schools, and you're going to have other neighborhoods where there aren't uh, th that many resources, and those, those um, communities will have low-performing schools. That's the way capitalism works. You're just going to have to get used to it. And I never believed that that had to be the case, and I, but I could never really articulate sort of why I thought that um, until about a year and a half ago, I had the good fortune of having dinner with, uh, with Warren Buffett. So never in my life, people, did I ever think that I would get the opportunity to talk to Warren Buffett. But there I was in Omaha having a steak with Warren one night. Uh, he was, he's actually a DCPS graduate. And he said to me, he said, you know, Michelle, it is very easy to fix the problems in public education in America today. <laughs> and I said, wonderful, Mr. Buffett, just fill me in on what the answer is so I can run back to DC and start implementing that. And he said, well, all you need to do is, is make private schools illegal <laughs> and assign every child to a public school by random lottery. So think about this for a minute. In Washington, D.C., if every ambassador's child, every CEO's child, every congressman's child, and the president's children 
got assigned to a random DCPS school by lottery, which means that a huge percentage of them would be going across the bridge to Anticostia every day for school. I can guarantee you that you would never see a faster movement of resources from one side of the city to the other as you would in that circumstance. And I would also guarantee you that very quickly we would have a system of excellent schools. So the question in my mind is not, is it possible to achieve this very lofty goal for the children of this country? It is possible. The, the, the real question is, do we as the adults in this nation have the wherewithal that it would take to make the incredibly difficult decisions necessary to make this a reality for every young person growing up in any community anywhere in America? And the answer to that question has been a resounding no. But I do think that the tide is turning, and I think we have a huge opportunity ahead of us. So my, uh, my philosophy coming into this job was that we were going to move aggressively, do things that had never been done before, and if I was going to go down, I was going to go down guns a-blazing. Uh, <clears throat> so... <laughs> So uh, l let me give you my, my three kind of major lessons uh, uh, so that you don't <laughs> repeat any of the mistakes that I've made. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sure that I have a few more that I'll, I'll make along the way, but this is to date in the first two and a half plus years. So the first piece of advice that, that I received that I think is one of the best pieces of advice is you have to lead from the front lead from the front. So, uh, you know, probably uh, maybe week five on the job, I got a call. I was driving home one night. It was raining. It was dark. And I got a call from Joel Klein, who's my mentor and somebody who I respect greatly. He's the chancellor of the New York City public school system. And he actually got me into this mess to begin with because he was the one who who uh, told Mayor Fenty that, 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 they, that he should hire me. And so he feels very responsible for everything that happens to me. <laughs> Uh, and so he calls and he says, okay, Michelle, I'm going to give you two really pieces, important pieces of advice. So I was like, okay, pull over to the side of the road. I park. I get ready to listen. And he said, the first thing, let me ask you a question. Do you have a boyfriend? <laughs> and I said, uh, no, I don't. At the time, I didn't. And he said, okay, you need to hurry up and get one. <laughs> and I said, sir? And he said, well, look, this is the loneliest job you could possibly have. And unless you have someone at home who loves you, you will go crazy. I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll go nuts. You just need somebody at home. And every night when you get home, after having gone through these insane days, right, you need somebody who's there next to you who says, you know what, honey? You're not crazy. They're the crazy ones. <laughs> Uh, and so he, it, he said, so you need that. Without that kind of support in your personal life, you're, you're never going to make it. So, so go re re revitalize your dating life. Um, and I, I never uh, thought that I would be getting love life advice from Joel Klein. But there it was. That was his first nugget. Uh, the, his second piece was, I said, OK, I got that one. He said, well, my second piece of advice is you have to lead from the front. And he said it with such conviction and sort of definitiveness that I said, okay, that is incredibly helpful, sir. Thank you so much. And I hung up the phone. I started driving again. And I was thinking, I have no idea what that means. Uh, and it wasn't actually until a few months later that it kind of clicked in my head because I was going through a process where I decided to close a lot of our schools. 
And for any of you who know kind of about education uh, politics, you know that if you quickly uh, want to become the least popular person in a city, all you need to do is announce that you're closing a school, uh, much less 23 schools, which is what I announced. And it was the largest number of schools that had ever been closed at one time anywhere in the nation. It was 15% of our inventory, uh, and people were going absolutely nuts. <clears throat> and it was interesting to me because... You know, I, I attended hundreds and hundreds of community meetings about these closures. And I would go into these places uh, uh, and people would say to me, you know, this school is an anchor of the community. Do you really think that we need one more boarded up vacant building in this neighborhood? You know, you can't, my, my, my mother went to this school, my grandmother went to this school, I went to this school, now my kids are going to this school. You cannot cl close this down. <coughs> And these are very compelling sort of personal and emotional arguments. But the fact of the matter remained that we were not utilizing our resources efficiently. We had 40, about, about 50,000 kids at the time, and we were operating 144 schools, which meant that the vast majority of our schools were way under-enrolled. And what that resulted in was this dynamic where we were spending almost more money per child than any other urban jurisdiction in the country, but nobody felt like we were spending that much money because we were putting a whole lot of our resources into you know, lighting, heating, and air conditioning half-empty buildings. Uh, now, nobody wanted to hear about the economics of it at that time, and so uh, I got battered along the way um, uh, through that school closing process, but probably the, the most kind of rewarding piece of that was that a year later, uh, uh, a, a woman came up to me and she said, you probably recognize me. I was the one who was yelling at you all the time, uh, picketing in front of your office and that sort of thing. She said, I just wanted to let you know that you made the right decision. She said, I, I couldn't see it at the time because I was so sad about the school closing. She said, but what I realize is that now you've put us in a school that is much higher quality overall. We have additional resources. Uh, you know, you, you've made the system better. And we, in fact, because of the decision that we made around the school closures, we were able to, in the first time in the history of Washington, D.C., make sure that every single school in the city had an art teacher, a music teacher, a PE teacher, a librarian, and a nurse. So we equalize those resources for every child. <clears throat> now, if I would have gotten caught up in the, the, the sort of emotional piece to this or, or, or kind of, you know, what the common wisdom was saying, then we would not have been able to make that decision. So it was important because sometimes as a leader, you have to be able to see what other people can't see. And you have to be out in front, even if you are out in front all alone, um, because eventually people will come along to understand why you made that decision if you're making the decision for the right reason. So lead from the front is my first piece of advice. Um, my second piece uh, is that it is okay not to be liked. I am really good at this particular uh, <laughs> tenant right now. Uh, you know, it's interesting because um, uh, probably about two years ago, I was at a conference and a very well-known and kind of high-ranking person in the Democratic Party came up to me, and, uh, and you know, I'd just gotten done with this panel, and he sort of pulled me aside, and he said, Michelle, I have a little uh, unsolicited advice for you. I said, okay, what is it? He said, you just need to soften up. Soften, soften, soften. He's like, you are so 
hardcore all the time and you're talking about all of the bad things that are happening and you're you know, throwing the data in people's faces and if you would just soften up a little, then so many more people would be on your side because you're talking about how bad things are all the time and so you're making people feel bad. And I said, I'm making people feel bad, good. Because when you have a circumstance where 8% of your children are on grade level, this is not a circumstance that should make you feel warm and fuzzy inside. This is a circumstance that should make people feel bad and give people a sense of urgency about the work that we're doing. I am not here to win any popularity contests. I'm not here to make people feel good. In my opinion, we as the adults in public education in this country, for far too long, we have been willing to cast a blind eye to the, ch to the reality of what is happening to children in classrooms every day in the name of harmony amongst adults, right? I wanna be popular, I want people to like me. That has not served our children well, and that is not a direction that I'm willing to move forward in, in any way in this reform effort. Um, so it's okay not to be liked as long as you know that what you're doing is the right thing and is meeting your bottom line. And our bottom line here in this district is student achievement levels and increasing those uh, achievement levels for kids.